Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. 
David Chang is well known for his rebellious persona, but he does admit that age has changed his priorities. Today, he speaks with us about what it takes to manage a restaurant and why he is no longer concerned with being called a sellout. Selling out sometimes means getting older and more mature. And you have to ask yourself, am I holding on to my pride and my ego because I need to remain pure and independent and have my street cred? And is my ego preventing my ability to better take care of my employees? And if that means I'm a sellout, then I'm a sellout. Then so be it. Also coming up, Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett tell us how certain foods contain cooking instructions right in their names. And later we share a recipe for the best stewed beans you'll ever make. But first up today, it's my interview with Mark Forsyth about his book, A Short History of Drunkenness. Mark Forsyth, welcome to Milk Street. Thanks for having me on the show. Um, Your book, A Short History of Drunkenness, did you originally set out to write a long history of drunkenness? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a long, I sort of thought about it, but um, uh, a long history of drunkenness would, I think, be a history of the entire world, given that pretty right. much every society on earth in all human history has drunk. So um, I thought I'd um, just zoom in on various little points and what was a Wild West saloon like or what was the ancient Egyptian festival of drunkenness like, that sort of thing. Um, pick out little scenes and see the differences. So... What was a Wild West saloon really like? I've always wondered. I assume it had nothing to do with uh, what I've seen in the movies. Um, largely nothing to do. The first and most disappointing thing is those Batwing saloon doors didn't exist, <laughs> which um, just ruins most of the Westerns I've ever seen. Though there is a, an aspect which is actually very precisely correct, which you get in lots of movies. You, you know when sort of Clint Eastwood walks into the saloon and asks for a drink, and the barman just pours him a drink, and he chucks a coin on the bar, and he never asks how much the drink cost, and he never gets any change. That's actually completely historically accurate, because what you would have is you'd have a two-bit saloon. Usually there was a, t- a town had two-bit or four-bit saloons. The four-bit saloons were the nicer ones. The two-bit mm. ones were very cheap, and all the drinks cost two bits, so you could just throw your two bits on the bar, and that would always pay for the drinks. And that's why you still have that phrase of this is a two-bit town. Huh. So that's accurate. Uh, people did get very drunk out in the Wild West. Uh, largely, they were drinking whiskey just because that was so much easier to transport. And an awful lot of it was fake whiskey, flavoured with weird things like creosote in one case, I found. There was a <laughs> whole recipe book for how to fake various different kinds of drinks using just raw alcohol. So you put in some cold tea, some creosote, some raw alcohol, a little bit of sugar, and it will taste something like whiskey. But it really would get close to killing you. Uh, you asked the question, the eternal question, what happens when you give rats an open bar? Uh, what's the answer to that? Um, rats are rats are very amusing. There are lots of experiments where they've given open bars to animals. And I can't help thinking that scientists are just giggling as they um, concoct these experiments. So chimpanzees, for example, just get drunk and stay drunk permanently. But um, rats do this very odd thing of... Uh, At the beginning, they all just get drunk, but then it forms into a routine and they drink basically twice a day. They drink just before they feed, which scientists call the aperitif, and they drink just before they sleep, which um, scientists refer to as the nightcap. 
And then every um, four or five days in the rat colony, they suddenly all up their alcohol intake. So they appear to be having little rat parties every few days um, <laughs> where they all get drunk together. And it sounds rather lovely and rather human. But then there's a, a strange and much darker side to it, which is that a, a rat colony has a very strict social structure from the uh, the top male, who's called the king rat, down to the, the, the very low status males. And it's the low-status males who drink the most. They seem to drink out of stress. They drink because they're miserable, whereas the king rat is always a teetotaler, which is a a bit sinister. But it's very hard to say why they're doing it because of how much we are projecting onto the animals of our own human ideas. So, for example, I mean, a fruit fly, which is a tiny little thing which barely has a brain at all, but we know that when a, a male fruit fly is rejected by a female, it ups its alcohol intake. Um, so it seems to be drinking to cure a broken heart, but that may just be some sort of strange projection. But it's lovely anyway. <laughs> it's lovely, yes. Uh, so religion and drunkenness in, in many cases goes together, although not in, in the Western tradition, I guess. Uh, well, we do, of course, have um, communion. Uh, one of the uh, strange things about the the history of wine and wine making is that wherever Christianity has gone, you've had to take wine in order to celebrate communion, and uh, and that's why when all the conquistadors were landing on the um, in America and on the coast of California, particularly, they had vines in their boats because they had to plant the vines so they could start making wine, so they could convert the natives and then have a proper communion. So. Um, it meant uh, quite seriously that things like converting Iceland became very hard because any way you have Christianity, you've got to have your wine supply somehow getting there. Um, Aztecs, you mentioned Aztecs liked more hallucinogens. They did not like alcohol. You said that a priest who drank was killed. Yeah. A government official lost their job. A regular person would have their head shaved in public. So wh- why was alcohol not uh, part of the Aztec culture? A lot of the time, if, you, if you're a normal person, you, you'd be strangled in public. And if you're a nobleman, you got strangled in private, which seemed like a weird advantage to being a noble. Um, it's quite hard to see how Aztec culture worked with drinking. They definitely had beer. They definitely got drunk. They measured their drunkenness on a, on a scale, actually, because there were 400 sacred rabbits of drunkenness. So you measured your drunkenness... On a rabbit scale, you'd say I was seven rabbits drunk last <laughs> night. <laughs> uh, so let's go to China, 1700 BC. One of the emperors drank a lot. Uh, I, I love this. He was happily drinking and riding his chancellor around like a horse. When his chancellor became exhausted and collapsed, the uh, emperor had him executed. Uh, just a day in the life, right? A day in the life. Well, there are two Chinese emperors, according to the, once you get far enough back in Chinese history, the emperors become slightly mythological, and you can't work out to what extent they existed. But there were two. There was uh, the first Chinese emperor had a wine lake built, so he could paddle around it in a little canoe and just sort of lean over the side and. Um, uh, drink it. And a few generations later, you had another emperor who had a wine lake, but this time he had a little island in the middle with a tree on it, which was hung with baked meats. So a kind of a, a bacon tree or something. So you you could paddle around on your wine lake and then pick bacon off a tree. Uh, it just sounds utterly wonderful. But um, the Chinese had a, a troubled relationship with wine. They uh, 
according to legend, the, the guy who invented wine, which was actually, the, well, the earliest known wine does come from China. Uh, but the guy who invented wine showed it to uh, the first very wise emperor. And um, he tasted it and said, this is wonderful. Have the guy execute it because it's too good and it will cause disorder in the world. True. Yeah. But uh, also great pleasure. Um, so fast forward to today. Do you see the history of alcohol still today affecting how we consume it and where are we headed next with it? It's so hard to say where the trends are going now. I will say that we will never cut drunkenness out of our lives and I don't think we'll ever cut alcohol out. We need to say cheers. We need to mark time and place and weddings and funerals and New Year's and birthdays and all these things. We need alcohol and drunkenness specifically as as a kind of punctuation in our lives. And I think that's part of being human and that will never, ever go away. Mark Forsyth, thanks for being on Milk Street. Thank you very much for having me on. That was Mark Forsyth, etymologist and author of A Short History of Drunkenness. It's time to take your calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also the author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready to go? Chris, I am so prepared. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Josh from Chicago. Hi, Josh. How are you? I am doing fantastic. Good. How can we help you? Well, I'm calling because I am trying to up my spice game. I uh, have, for such a long time, had the typical spices, my salt, my peppers. Maybe on occasion I'll go crazy and have some dried oregano or cumin. So I thought I would actually kind of break the mold this year and try and build out that spice rack that's been for too long empty. And I'm just trying to figure out how does the guy kind of build out the spices and, you know, where does he start and what are some of the more interesting spices that one should have in their repertoire? Well, I'll give you five or six spices I think you should get. You mentioned cumin and coriander. You should definitely have those. I would have them ground and whole seeds. A lot of recipes, I use them whole or you toast them whole in a skillet for a couple minutes and then grind them up and you get lots more flavor. For pepper, Aleppo pepper and Urfa pepper, Aleppo is particularly useful. It's a little fruity. It's hot. It's used in a lot of recipes around the Middle East. A smoked paprika. You can use water, old bread, and some garlic and make a soup with smoked paprika. It's great. Uh, turmeric, <laughs> I assume you have around, but make sure you have that. And then two others, sumac, which is used a lot in Middle Eastern cooking, and the last would be Sichuan peppercorns because they give you that sort of numbing experience in the mouth, which is really unique and is used in a lot of cooking. So cumin, coriander, cardamom, Aleppo, smoked paprika, turmeric, sumac, Sichuan peppercorns. That's more than five, but that's my list. All Sarah? right. Josh, what are you going to be cooking? Well, I traditionally cook mostly stews. So I'm trying to break out of that mold. I'd have two suggestions. Saute the onions with some oil, cook them, and add the spices with the onions at the beginning to develop some flavor. So no matter what oh. spices you use, don't just throw everything in. And you can use a cold pan with cold oil and put the onions in and then add your cumin or coriander, whatever you want, and develop that for seven or eight minutes. Secondly, when you're finished with your dish, 
take a little bit of oil, just like grapeseed oil, it could be your olive oil. Take a little bit of spice, like an Aleppo pepper would work, or you could use turmeric or whatever you want, and infuse that on top of the uh, stove. Just warm up the oil with the pepper in it for a couple minutes, and then drizzle it over each serving when you serve it. It's called tarka. It's T-A-R-K-A. It's used in Indian cooking. Those two things should up your game substantially because you get a lot more flavor at the beginning and at the end. Well, I agree with cooking things in oil and also finishing with spices as well, but I would love for you to learn the flavor profile of each one of these spices. So I'd almost say take one at a time and cook it in a little oil and taste it and see how you like it. This is a new concept for me, a flavor profile. Well, this is wonderful. I'll now feel less intimidated when I walk down that spice aisle. Oh, you should. Don't yeah. worry about Take it. Take charge. Yes. Throw your shoulders back. <laughs> yes, yeah. Josh. Look forward. <laughs> yes. Okay. Thanks for going. All right. Thank you. Thank you very yeah. much. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Most Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a call anytime. That number is 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, Howard Breslau calling. Is that the Howard Breslau that I know, or is this a different Howard Breslau? It is, Chris. It, it sounds is. like, oh, so now you're going to ask me a really embarrassing question, right? I'm going to no, enjoy this. No, I would never this. do that. I'll <laughs> just sit back. <laughs> Howard, how can we help you? Make it very difficult. Hello, Sarah. Hello, and do address it right to Chris. Put him on the hot okay. seat, please. So we'll get right to it. Uh, a lot has been swirling around recently about the proper way to grill meat. Much of this has come from... Meathead Goldwyn, who uh-huh. advocates roasting in an oven and then finishing on a grill. Yep. Can you put some science behind the meat grilling debate sure. and put it to rest? See what, what? I did there? Yeah. Um, th- this is a softball. Thank you. The theory is this. If you cook a steak or meat over very low heat, it's evenly cooked from the outside in. So you have more rare or medium rare and, or whatever you're trying and to achieve. As Meathead says, what happens is it's not the heat cooking the inside of the meat. It's the outside of the meat that gets hot, and then that radiates heat to the inside of the meat. So if you use high heat, the outside absorbs a lot of energy and gets overcooked by the time the inside comes up to temperature. So you start with low heat, mostly cook it, and then at the very last few minutes, you cook it in a skillet or over a high heat just to get a nice sear. The other thing that happens is you get sort of turbo aging, Once the meat gets in that 75, 80 degree to 100 degree range, you actually get flavor development. I've done a blind taste test where you can actually taste the difference. So if you put a thick steak in an oven for half an hour, 40 minutes at 250 degrees, you are sort of aging the meat. Traditionally, the reason I guess we all cooked, one of the reasons that many people have advocated for grilling is to seal in the juices, right? Searing does nothing to seal in the juices. I mean, it's not a bag of water that's going to leak out unless you sear the outside. <laughs> the only reason that liquid leaves is because the muscle proteins tighten, they twist, and they shorten, and the water gets mm-hmm. pushed out. And that's an entirely a function of internal temperature. It has nothing to do with the outside at all. The other thing is, you know, if you cook chicken, I do it over very low heat for a long period of time, and you get a great browning on the crust. You're talking and about it, what kind of chicken? Like a spatchcock chicken on a grill. Okay. Cook it very low heat, and you will find Meat that side it, down, skin side down? Both. Okay, flip it. It turns out you can get a great crust with low heat with time. Right. And you don't have to worry about it burning, and you don't have to worry about flipping it constantly. 
I think it's a great way to cook chicken as well. Oh, I, I like that. So yeah, same temperature, two fifty. Well, this would be an outdoor. I just put it on sort of medium low on a grill, and then on maybe grill, next right. to it, you can also have the grill on medium high. Or the other thing you can do is if it's a three part gas grill, the center is off and the two sides are on medium high. You know, you're almost roasting it with indirect heat, mm. I would say. Great. You didn't think you'd get this much excitement, did you? Oh, no, this is exactly what I was <laughs> hoping to get. And I'm delighted to uh, get this uh, detailed answer. Yeah, start, it, start a steak, a thick steak in a 250 oven, and then finish it on the grill or a skillet. Thank okay. you so much. All right, Howard. Howard, good Thanks. to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, we're chatting with David Chang, host of Netflix's Ugly Delicious, also author of Eat a Peach. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine, like, something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) 
Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with chef and Momofuku founder, David Chang. David, uh, welcome to Milk Street. Excited to be on. Thank you for having me. Um, love your memoir, Eat a Peach. Um, you had a lot of interesting stuff in here, but let me just start with this quote. You think a salmon really wants to swim upstream and die? Question mark. They have no choice. That's how I feel, too. And I have to say, reading a memoir uh, like yours, I wasn't really expecting those lines could you just explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I, I've used that expression um, a lot. M- number one, I think because I'm an avid fly fisherman, and I don't know if I oftentimes think like a fish, but I always ponder, you know, why would they swim upstream to go back to the place of their birth in freshwater from the ocean, and uh, ultimately do something that's in their genetic coding to reproduce and then die. You know, it's an incredibly, in some ways, sad and depressing thing. But ultimately, too, it's could be seen as beautiful. But, you know, in some ways, it's how I sort of think about the, the existential sort of plight uh, that I sometimes think about my own life. And that, you know, you have to continue to move forward regardless of the circumstances. And uh, that's the only guarantee you have in life, right, is that you're going to die. And I know that seems incredibly like sad to think about but i sometimes think about it in a way that's very uh refreshing you know it gets my gets me moving so let's start at the beginning uh, you grew up in northern virginia your father was from north korea your mother from south korea and you were a golf prodigy which i did not know at a very early age uh but by the time you got to be what 10 or 11 other people started surpassing you was that motivational for you was that difficult you know, sometimes I think about that, Chris, and it's almost like gaslighting. Like, was I even that good? Because I never, you know, fulfilled as a prospect. But um, I think about it then, and I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, and I was this cocky little shit as a kid because I just won and I beat everybody. But I don't think I ever grew to love it. It became something that I had to do. 
and you know, burning out is a is a terrible feeling because I didn't have the mental experience or ability to understand why I wasn't good anymore. You know, that wasn't that wasn't easy to deal with. Um, also, your dad. I, there's a little detail. I, I love memoirs. With the, it's the details that matter. You said he was the kind of guy who would order his meal ahead of time in a restaurant and then ask for the check halfway through. That that just sounds like the antithesis of your approach to food. It is the antithesis, and simultaneously imprinted a giant, like giant part of who I am. You know, simultaneously, you know, it was um, it was embarrassing. He would call before we would leave the house to go to a restaurant, order ahead, and um, we would be in and out in under sometimes twenty minutes. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't about enjoying the meal. It was simply just food and to eat something delicious as quickly as possible and get out. You know, part of my career, I think, has been exploring what's absolutely necessary in dining to strip away some of the what might be nonsense uh, or trivial things. And uh, I never thought about it until recently that, wow, like my dad did leave that giant imprint on me. You also talk a little bit about the, the restaurant business when you got started at Cafe Baloo, you said the Amuse Bouche had a rule, and the rule was it had to be made from scraps. It had to be one bite. It had to be incredibly delicious, but they weren't going to spend any money on, you know, creating a separate prep for it. It was something you had to sort of create out of nothing. Is, th- is that true of a lot of restaurants, well, or was that just there? Yeah, that's true for the most part. I mean, there were probably a handful of times where there was something. I remember one day getting a base gallop in, um, and we made a dish that I've continued to riff on, base yellows with pineapple and dashi. Um, but amuse bouche for the restaurants that I've been in, for the most part, like I would say 99.9% of the time, have always been, we're not buying you anything. Use what you have in the restaurant and, and be resourceful, be creative. You have to make something out of nothing, so, yet make it incredibly delicious and visually stunning. It becomes the bane of your existence, but that kind of pressure uh, proved to be very fruitful for me. So, okay, so you want to start your own restaurant at, at a very young age. Yeah. But you had a great concept, which I still, maybe is even more relevant today. You're talking about Japan. I could eat extraordinarily well in places that weren't punishingly expensive, and I don't mean cheap eats. You mean people who have an incredible devotion to their craft but this was not the $250 a person meal. And I just think that's a lovely concept uh, to start a restaurant. Yeah, that, you know, and it was a variety of reasons as to why I started it. But I think one of the main reasons why was I never thought I was going to be good enough to open up a fine dining restaurant. But I, I, at that time in my life, I was fortunate enough that I, I traveled abroad. And there was a good stretch where I thought I would be an expat living somewhere in Asia. And I was able to travel, and I think that's probably the most important thing if you have the the privilege and luxury to be able to see how other people eat. And from China and Japan and Korea and a little bit even in Europe, but specifically in Asia, I was blown away at just how well people would eat cheaply, right? Even from the convenience store to how college students would eat. But there was a rich food culture throughout Asia that I found was not only accessible and, and um, you know, populist, but it wasn't fast food. It was something that I didn't know how to understand because it didn't exist in America. 
that you could spend, you know, $5 to $10 and have a beautiful meal. And it wasn't fast food. Well, so you open the restaurant. I, I just love this. So someone, one of your customers had had your ramen, your noodles, said, I've had this in Asia. If you think you're making Japanese food, I'm sorry, you're sorely mistaken. Actually, I have to ask you, have you ever been to Japan? And so you redid, I think in the first few months, you rethought the menu and decided to do what you really wanted to do, I guess. Well, you know, that those first six months were brutal. We were certainly going to go out of business. And, you know, we, we started off talking a little bit about ruminating on death and and how that can motivate you. And when you're faced with the prospect of going out of business and your business dying, you're like, okay, the things that I thought were important aren't that important. Right. The things that I thought that I couldn't do, who cares, right? We're going to go out of business anyway. And, you know, the best way I could describe, you know, the, the sort of the pivotal moment for us was like, we're not going to serve dumplings. You know, for that back then I thought if you were going to serve noodles, you had to serve dumplings, you had to serve fried rice. And these were sort of the stereotypical side dishes of serving something in a noodle house. And then it dawned on me, most people don't even know what a noodle house was. Most people don't even know what a real bowl of ramen is. So I was like, who cares? You, you have these ideas that you want to do, but you're like, oh, that's just too far-fetched. People, they won't get it. And then when you find that you have basically like two to three weeks of, of money left, <laughs> you're like, screw it. You know, it's called motivation. Let's just try everything. Right. Who cares? Exactly. So you also talk about the reality of the restaurant business and you talk about every day you'd have to climb a ladder to clean out the air conditioners, compressor, the vents because of a tree in the neighborhood that had some strange flower on it. Um, you know, d dealing with the sump pump and other problems. How much of the restaurant business is really not exploring your art is just the day-to-day -day <laughs> cleaning out stuff and making sure the electricity works. Oh, man. That is like all day. That is your entire life. <laughs> um, just dealing with the most idiotic things that are constantly breaking. Um, it's hard to focus on actually cooking uh, because you're now responsible for the livelihoods of employees and your guests you know maintaining a building in new york city is incredibly difficult so you find yourself you know you just never have a moment of quiet because you're constantly fixing something um and then you finally reach a point where you accept it right like if you talk to a lot of restaurant owners that have been not, not necessarily successful, but they've endured it. At some point, you stop fighting and complaining about the situation, and you learn to sort of let it wash over you and realize that this is just part of reality now, and you learn to accept it. And you learn to become better at dealing with it. And the best way I could describe it is you just sort of surrender to the idea, and then you reach another level. Well, I think it was Bill Buford told me recently, he, he pointed that out too, but he said you know, 12 hours a day of doing the same repetitive task, at some point you get to the top of that hill, right, or the bottom, and you start to love it. You start to love the repetition. You start to love the work. 
Yeah. I mean, it's one of the reasons why we decided to choose the cover of the book, which is basically a, a riff on the myth of Sisyphus. Right. It is the most existentially, absurdly stupid job you could possibly do. You spend 12 to 14 hours a day making something that's going to disappear in the toilet, you know, eight hours later after <laughs> someone consumes it. It's, it's so dumb. And yet we treat it so seriously. And I think that the reality is, is at some point, if you if if you get it, it becomes like everything. The the monotony, the, the 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 what I jokingly say is the stupidity of it becomes liberating, and becomes like a weird metaphor for life, where doing the work becomes the best part of your day. Because when you step back and you really truly appreciate it, it's this job that it's a little bit of sportsmanship, it's a little bit of teamwork, it's physical. It's science, it's artistry, it's business. And I, I have a hard time finding any other job that has, that we, you have to like truly juggle all of those things to be great at it. A lot of people sell out in this business. Uh, you, you almost sold out to a fast food chain at one point. Uh, you write about a developer, I think, who wanted to do business with you and you discovered deep in the contract that you would have to take over one of his losing properties and fix it. Uh, is that uh, in your business is the idea of selling out a problem? And do you think people who do eventually sell out lose their soul in the business or you think that's the, the right end point? You know, I, I've wrestled with that question of selling out a lot in my life. And um, I would argue that, if I was a younger version of me in my early 20s, I'd say this guy's a sellout now, right? right? right. And you know what? Selling out sometimes means getting older and more mature or staying young and rebellious. Right. And for me, it was how do you always do better to take care of everybody? And so much of our growth originally was trying to get health care for everybody, you know? And that was the thing is, when you have to ask yourself, am I holding on to my pride and my ego because I need to remain pure and independent and have my street cred? And is my ego preventing my, my ability to better take care of my employees? And if that means I'm a sellout, then I'm a sellout. Then so be it. Or even survive as a business. Yeah, or even as survive well. as a business. Exactly. So things change for sure. Let's talk about you for a second. You, you say your method was a dangerous, short-sighted combination of fear and fury. Uh, and you also talk about getting depressed. Are, are you at a stage now where you, you sort of outgrew all of that uh, in life? Now you have a, you know, a kid. and Have you outgrown that period of your life, or is that still with you? Um, no, I don't think I'm ever going to outgrow it. That is something that is uh, going to be with me you know, forever. Um, I still wrestle with all of these things, um, you know, the default setting as it was. And, and uh, you know, that's, that's, my, that's my duty, the challenge I present to myself to make sure I try not to make the same mistakes and to grow and to be a better person, to hold myself accountable and, and to acknowledge my weaknesses and, 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 and uh, to be transparent. Uh, and I think that the only thing that's really been different, Chris, is... As I've gotten older, I'm more willing to share it with people and the people around me. And before, when I was going through 
whatever trials and tribulations, it felt like I was totally alone. And while I still feel totally alone at times, I know unequivocally now that there are people that in my worst moments will help me out. Uh, You knew Tony Bourdain. (laughs) In the book, you talk about having a series of meals one night with him with just a, a massive amount of food. He texted you after that dinner and the text said, be a fool for love. Um, I think I know what that means, but what does that mean to you? You know, again, I think about that a lot too. And I think Tony just was like, I think at the end of the day, we all know what, what makes us happy, but we're afraid of the repercussions of actually doing it. Whether it's out of fear or embarrassment or some kind of anxiety that whatever action you actually want to do. And everything we want is on the other side of fear. And I think that's what Tony was saying is whatever's in your head that's preventing you from being happy or finding love or being more fulfilled, just throw that away. David, uh, a real, real pleasure having you on Milk Street and I wish you all the best. Um, Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on, Chris. That was David Chang, founder of the Momofuku Restaurant Group, also host of Netflix's Ugly Delicious. His new memoir is Eat a Peach. Chang commented that the only thing that is certain about life is death and that death, in fact, refreshes one's appreciation for life. Chang is not alone. In ancient India, corpses were left exposed in charnel grounds, people actually witnessed decomposition, a vivid reminder of one's mortality. Stoicism, a Greek school of philosophy, believed that everything was born to die, a reminder to focus on what is truly important, which for them was spiritual progress. Yet not every philosopher agrees. A 16th century philosopher Montaigne mused that obsessing over death is a bit like putting on a fur coat in summer because we'll need it at Christmas. But perhaps a modern writer, Irvin Yalom said it best, although the physicality of death destroys us, the idea of death saves us. It's time to head into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Mexican stewed beans with salsa fresca. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. I always start these things by telling you where I went. I'm so lucky. Which you don't appreciate. (laughs) But I, I went to Mexico City specifically to cook beans with a chef. His name is Eduardo Garcia. He owns Maximo Restaurant in town. But he told me to meet him at the canal. It turns out... Mysterious. It, well, it is. Uh, Xochimilco is the southern district of Mexico City, which is surrounded by mountains. And hundreds of years ago, the Aztecs took a lake and built islands, which was used for agriculture. So you essentially have a series of canals between the islands. And the food was grown and then by boat brought into the center of town. Of course, you can't do that now because it's all built up. But the canal still exists. You get on a barge. Early in the morning, it was cold and misty, very romantic. And we motored up for about half an hour to one of these islands, which he uses as sort of a cooking school. It was absolutely gorgeous. And so we got there. He used a cazuela, a pottery pot, over a wood fire, of course, cooked the beans for a couple hours made a sofrito and also made a salsa fresca. 
And that was the meal. We had blue corn tortillas with it, which were handmade right there. We forgot to bring spoons, so we used the tortillas as spoons, which I got pretty good at. That works. As a shovel. And these enormous bottles of beer to go along with it as well. You know, thousands of miles and up a canal on a barge to cook beans. And for good reason, because these were absolutely phenomenal. So uh, replicating that here, we had to make, I guess, a few changes, right? We did. So Eduardo uses a very local pinto bean, a really young pinto bean. The pinto beans we were able to get access to really didn't live up to your memory of this magical voyage you took down the (laughs) canal to the island. So we had to substitute with a cranberry bean. It's very similar in terms of how it cooks up. It's really velvety inside, very meaty bean. And that's really important here because the bean is really the star of the show. Meaty is exactly the right adjective because it feels like a savory meat dish almost. The beans become meat. Yeah. So the sofrito was slightly different, right? It was. It was kind of surprising to me. I've cooked a lot of Latin American food and always used a sofrito. You know, it's usually onion, garlic, tomato, a little bit of jalapeno or guajillo chili. And you use that as the base of whatever you're making. Eduardo does it slightly differently, which makes the most sense, and adds it at the end. So all of those flavors are really nice and fresh and bright. I'm surprised I've never seen this before, but it was really like, oh, of course you would add this at the end. Why wouldn't you want those flavors to be fresh? Yeah, once in a while I have a culinary moment where I feel like a total idiot. I mean, it does happen more frequently than I'd like (laughs) to admit. But when he did that and I asked him, he said, well, that's because it tastes fresher. If you added the beginning, it would taste tired. So for 40 years, I've been adding it at the beginning. This is one of those lessons you can take with you, right? It seems so obvious. And then at the end, you add the salsa fresca, which is a raw salsa, tomato, red onion, jalapeno, cilantro, really, again, nice, fresh flavors added to these stewed beans. So thousands of miles up a canal to an island to cook beans with Eduardo Garcia. And this was just a fabulous day. And this is just a great dish. Mexican stewed beans savory, meaty, and the sofrito at the end, and the salsa fresca, and a few tortillas to use as a spoon. Why not? And big bottles of beer. And big bottles of beer. Actually, they refer to them in Spanish as turtles. <laughs> They're about as big as a large turtle. Just absolutely delicious. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome. You can get this recipe for Mexican stewed beans with salsa fresca at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett give us a language lesson on food names that double as cooking instructions. That and more in just a moment. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. 
Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Amanda Ruth. Hi, Amanda. Where are you calling from? Blandon, Pennsylvania. What can we do for you today? Well, I have a question. Um, whenever I use canned chickpea beans, such as like in your Punjabi recipe, I feel the need to squeeze off the outer skin prior to putting it in the pot because like the skin is kind of loose already, and I don't like that floating in my final dish. So I was wondering, is this a normal process, or am I messing up the flavor of the dish? Just, if you want to know how old somebody is, you ask them if they <laughs> remove the outer skin in their chickpeas, because I'm old <laughs> enough not to care. I just do not <laughs> care. I make hummus without doing it. I never bother. When you cook chickpeas, if you cook them with some baking soda in the water, and you've soaked them overnight, I know you're talking about mm-hmm. canned, they will kind of fall off on their own anyway. But mm-hmm. I would say this is a matter of personal preference. This is definitely your press. I, life is, I don't have enough years left to worry about skins on chickpeas. <laughs> do I have too much time on my hands? <laughs> no, well, you don't. No. This is what you care you, about. Yeah, you can do it. You're yeah. not messing okay. up the recipe by doing it. You're just okay. taking a little more time. And if you're happy okay. doing that, you should do it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I will keep on... Squeeze in then. Yeah, squeeze away. Or now, is this because you you don't like the way it looks, or you don't like it? Just looks feels gross. The skins. Yeah, it just kind of looks gross yeah. to have like just like that skin. And I only see it when it's canned chickpeas. When I start with the dry ones, I don't usually have a problem with it. But just the canned ones, they're already kind of loose, so it just kind of bothers me a little right. bit. Again, the baking soda method, toss the canned drained chickpeas with some baking soda and warm them in the microwave briefly, and then you, you can roll them in a towel, and the skin should come off. Well, you've got to rinse them in water. Yes. After you heat them. Okay. It's like hazelnuts, the other bane of my existence. I know. Mm-hmm. Is you use, a, use yeah. big kitchen towels. You put the kitchen towel down, put the hazelnuts or the chickpeas on it, cover it, and just roll it back and forth, and that'll get rid of most of them. Okay. Yeah. I'll try that next time. Sure. Thank okay. you. All right. Well, thanks for calling. Oh, yes. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. If you're looking to master a recipe or perhaps a technique, give us a ring. The number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. 
or simply email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Mary Jo. Hi, Mary Jo. Where are you calling from? Uh, Minneapolis. Uh, how can we help you? I'm having problems with a blueberry recipe. It's a quick bread, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just, uh, it, I cannot get it to not sink in the middle. And I've tried quite a few different things, but I'm thinking maybe it doesn't have enough leavener in it. Originally, the recipe called for a cup of sugar and a cup of flour. So I reduced the amount of sugar thinking that might help, but that didn't seem to do it. I've tried a couple different things, but I need some ideas. The recipe is so tasty. So what what else is in it? What are the other ingredients, the major ingredients? There's four ounces of cream cheese. And uh, I usually do about a cup of blueberries. There's an egg, a cup of flour. I put three-quarters cup of sugar, half a stick of butter, uh, and then egg, and then a um, teaspoon of baking powder and a quarter teaspoon of salt. When you use the, did you ever use the full cup of sugar and then reduced it? Did that change things when you reduced the sugar? No, it didn't. I thought it would because I was kind of trying to read it and I thought, well, maybe it's got, you know, too much sugar or something in it. And it didn't seem to make a difference. It still just doesn't seem to want to puff up. I've made every other kind of quick bread and I've never had a problem like this. It comes out okay in muffins, but it's just not as moist as the loaf usually is. So... My friend Jeannie Anderson wrote this cookbook called The Doubleday Cookbook. She had this section in there about what goes wrong with cakes. And I seem to remember when, you know, about cakes collapsing in the center, that it was usually either too much sugar, you already sensed that, or too much fat. But I also had another question. However, you're not having this problem with your other quick breads, so it's probably not the issue, which is, do you know that your baking powder is fresh? Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. so that's yeah. not the no, problem. No, I, I think you nailed it. I think there's not enough flour. You have a cup of flour, three-quarter cup of sugar, you got a cup of blueberries, you got cream cheese, you got butter, you got You egg. got six ounces of fat. Yeah, I think you've got too much fat to flour. Oh, okay. I would up the flour by at least a quarter cup or a third cup and see okay. if that does it. The reason the muffin's not a problem is because you have less volume and therefore the structure will work better than in a big loaf pan. But I think there's just too much fat in this to flour. My so maybe just a tiny bit more flour and keep everything the same, you're saying? Yeah, I would give that a shot. I think another quarter to third cup should solve it. Okay, I've got some blueberries in my refrigerator. I'll give it a shot tomorrow morning. Okay, and Mary Jo, please let us know how it goes. We we need to hear back. Did I that work? Do. But I mean, if it doesn't work, then don't bother. Going. No, don't call us. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, please, no, please do let us know because yeah, we'd be interested. We'd like to know, and we're rooting for you. Sounds good. All okay. right, Mary Jo, Bye. thanks. Thanks for your help. Yeah. Bye bye. This is Milk Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary inspiration from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Stephanie, and here are some tips for garlic. If a recipe calls for minced garlic, it's way easier to just grate it instead of cutting it, and you end up with the same result. When you go to fry that minced garlic, put it into a pan with cold oil, and then that way it heats up together and it won't burn as easily. If you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. Grant and Martha, welcome back to Milk Street. Hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. So 
Which words are you going to confound me with this week? Well, I've been thinking about the fact that the names of foods aren't arbitrary, that they may sound unusual, but some names simply contain cooking instructions inside the words themselves. I'm thinking of words like bouillabaisse, for example. Are you a bouillabaisse fan? I've actually had it in southern France, yeah. Mm. Well, I, actually, mm-hmm. I had it with my brother, and he's allergic to shellfish, so I had two portions. So it was oh. <laughs> it was a very successful outing. <laughs> Lucky you. For me, anyway. <laughs> It's such a lovely sounding word, right? But it simply means literally boil, then lower. It's got the cooking instructions built in right there in the word from French. So bouillet means boil, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And then the base in there is like a base in English, A-B-A-S-E, meaning to lower. You abase yourself, you lower. So so it's got the cooking instructions right there in the name of the dish. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that. And there are a lot of food names that simply mean to cut. For example, the word schnitzel from German. It comes from a root that means to cut, and it's a relative of, of words like schneider in English and snyder, which mean tailor. It has to do with hmm. cutting hmm. once again. Yeah. And that suffix, so that E-L suffix is a diminutive suffix, which kind of makes it small and cute. And it's the same suffix on the end of bagel. Well, yeah, I know that the Austrians in particular, everything's cute. Right. Yeah, yeah. Feta cheese, F-E-T-A, comes from a Greek word that simply means cutting. Huh. And again, it's related to the Italian word fettuccine, which means ribbons, huh. which is very picturesque, right? Well, I mean, you'd expect the Italians to be picturesque, right? I mean, you know. Oh, they are. Oh, all those pasta names like farfalle, which means butterflies, and umbilici sacri, which means navels of Venus, sacred navels. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> umbilici sacri? Wait, what is that? I never heard of that. What's that? Umbilici sacri. Well, it's tortellini, actually. Oh. It's what we call tortellini, but oh. they call it umbilici sacri, which is like umbilicus. It's it's like your like I your navel. It's the sacred navels. That's so much better than tortellini. Yeah, it's a lot more sexy, right? Yeah, that's good. What, what else do you have? Other words that have the food process in their name are words like pesto, which literally means pounded. Right. It's it's a relative of pestle and piston, those pounding terms. And couscous also comes from Arabic, a word that means pulverized. That's interesting because couscous isn't, it's the opposite of pulverized. It's taking flour Mm-hmm. and rolling it up with just a little bit of water into small pellets, right? Mm-hmm. So you're making something out of flour. You're building it up. You're not pulverizing it. It's kind of interesting. Right, yeah. It, it may have to do with the way you got the flour in the first place. That could be, stepping back in time in the production process. <laughs> so let's go back to the original one. Bouillabaisse tells you how to make it. I think that would be a fabulous book. I mean, you know... All the recipes have the directions in the name of the recipe. Lovely concept. (laughs) Some of them will be very long. (laughs) Preheat the oven to 375. (laughs) Right. Great, and Martha, uh, dishes that tell you something about how they're made, uh, right in the title. Thank you so much. Our pleasure. Thank you, Chris. That was Grant Barrett and Martha Barnett, hosts of Away With Words. You know, my favorite words are contronyms. Those are words that contain opposite meanings. To clip means to attach, but it also means to cut off. To sanction is to approve or penalize. To bound is to tie up or to leap. 
In the world of food, garnish means to decorate, but it also means to take away, as in garnish wages. So I think you could garnish someone's dinner plate by adding parsley or by taking away the mashed potatoes. Who says that words don't matter? That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please visit us at 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, Instant Pot Cooking at the Speeds You Need. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177 Milk Street. Before you go, I want to congratulate Travis and Ilsa on their recent marriage. Here's to a lifetime of joy and happiness around the table. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Samantha Brown. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chewbop Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.